0: Bonjour. I'm Terence Galanter, your American friend in Paris, coming to you almost live and almost every week from Cafe France in Paris's Troisieme Arrondissement. This program is being sponsored by a generous contribution from the Billy Cohn Collection. Herman and and Joe Mankiewicz. I would say this could be one of the legendary dysfunctional families. Uh, Joe so made a movie uh, called House of Strangers, which could easily uh, substitute for the title of your book.
1: Yes, indeed. House of Strangers. That's uh, Chris Mankiewicz always talks about how that is his favorite title of any of his dad's movies. Although,
0: um, not necessarily his favorite movie, but necessarily not necessarily
1: his favorite movie, but certainly his favorite title. And,
0: and it's not an awful movie. It's no, actually,
1: no. I mean, you know, accents aside, I think. Oh, right, um, yeah.
0: Edward G. Robinson and Richard Conti are always worth watching and. I think yeah. that's Esther Minicotti, who was uh, Marty's mother in Marty. I
1: could be wrong. Oh, so. no, think. you could be right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Very good. Very yeah, good. Yeah, yeah. In yeah.
0: that sense, I'm generally pretty right. Well, let's sit at the table and talk about these two guys. Uh, probably even before that, we should go back to the beginning and, and talk about uh, Franz, or Franz, whatever you want to call, who was uh, Jimmy Cagney's uh, high school teacher in uh, whatever, whatever the subject was. And that's, right. a, that's an amusing yeah. anecdote that you talk about. You know, what did you do? Well, tell that story, and then let's talk about uh, a great-grandpa, I guess.
1: Yeah, well, Franz Mankiewicz uh, was my great-grandpa, and uh, he was a very stern, um, somewhat humorless, uh, strict disciplinarian of a father and, and a professor, a linguistics professor. He taught a lot of things, um, and um, he cared nothing about the entertainment business, and didn't understand it, didn't didn't value it, didn't think that Joe or Herman were doing, you know, really good things with their lives. And but uh, one day when he was out in Hollywood visiting them, uh, visiting, I think Joe. Joe, you know, Joe liked to impress anybody, and so Joe took. Uh, uh, Franz to the Brown Derby in Hollywood, which was you know famous watering hole of all the stars and stuff. And lo and behold, who was there? But but Jimmy Cagney, who had been Franz's student back at Stuyvesant in uh, high school. In the in the I think it was Stuyvesant. I could I could well, beginning it wrong.
0: Stuyvesant. I mean, I was not aware of that I went to Brooklyn Tech, so we, I wasn't aware oh. that Jimmy was quite such a, a smart guy. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, who
1: knows what it was like back in the day. But anyway, um, so, so, uh, you know, Franz was like, uh, oh, well, you know, Cagney recognized him and said, Professor Rangowitz, how are you? Oh, my God, it's so great to see you. And uh, do you remember me? Cagney. And he says, yes, of course, of course, Cagney, you know, uh, tell me, uh, what are you doing these days? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> with no idea that it was Jimmy Cagney, uh, uh,
0: you know, Jimmy movie so star. Cagney, if you, uh, you may or may not know, was a fluent Yiddish speaker. And there's a, oh. a movie called Taxi. I think it's 1932, 33. And, uh-huh. uh, a clearly uh, elderly Jewish guy, uh, nicely dressed, uh, comes looking for a cab and he's having a discussion with the doorman. And Cagney starts spritzing Yiddish at him. I mean, fluently. You know, really? Yeah, he was. When he would negotiate with uh, with Jack Warner. Uh, Warner would be talking to his brother about the contract, and he'd say, "Shh, be patient." The the Shigetze speaks Yiddish, and he did. <laughs> <laughs> always always loved Jimmy. Let's yeah. talk a little bit. Let's go back to the beginning with, with Herman, who's uh, most well known for his uh, his work on Citizen Kane. Although uh, he hung out at the Algonquin Round Table, was a journalist in, in Berlin. 11 years older than his brother. Uh, Let's talk a little bit about him. And then he went to Berlin in 1920. So let's get a little background on Herman.
1: Well, so Herman was born in New York City in 1897 and was the firstborn son of Franz. And nothing Herman did, he quickly realized, would ever be good enough for his dad um, and he kind of lived his life uh, in reaction to this domineering man. Uh, and Herman's personality was fun-loving, large, gregarious, larger than life, uh, self-destructive, unbelievably funny, unbelievably quick. Um, you know, brilliant verbally, uh, just an, an amazing talker. Um, you know, they have they always used to say of Oscar Wilde, yeah, his work was good, but to hear him talk, you know, like he was the greatest talker who ever lived. And I think Herman fancied himself that way as someone whose who's wit could uh, never be captured. In fact, Ben Hecht, his good friend, said, like, you know, most of Mankey, uh, Mankey's utterances left you – laughing, rolling on the floor, but a man like that, you know, could never make literature out of it. He was he was simply too brilliant in real life to ever get his words down on paper in the right way. I don't know if that's necessarily true. Um, he had a very strong start to his journalism and writing career uh he went to uh, berlin as you said he worked for the like chicago tribune he, out there
0: well he he worked for chicago tribune he told his wife he had a job in berlin which he didn't so yeah he's, yes a, he's a, he's a good uh, a good yacker, that's for sure
1: yes definitely a good yacker. but you know he told his wife yeah you know they got married he said no no don't worry i have a job in berlin they go to berlin he doesn't have a job he pretends He's, you know, he's going off every morning to, to the, the Chicago Tribune offices. But in fact, he's packing crates and developing calluses on his hands. But at the same time, he is talking himself into journalism jobs. And, um, you know, he, he lived his life in a way as like one of those guys who, who wanted to be spoken of uh, as much as he wanted to be read. You know, he, he wanted to be a larger than life wit. You know, they called him the Voltaire of Center Park West when he was in New York later. And, you know, he was one of the early members of the, of the Algonquin Round Table, as you say. And, you know, he, he hung with the big boys and he, he could, you know, really keep up with them. Um, But then uh, after, you know, eight or nine years in in Berlin and New York, he, you know, goes to Hollywood. And that's the sort of fateful decision uh, of his life um, where he realizes, well, wait a minute, you know, you can make a lot of money doing these things called movies that no one thinks very much of. And uh, and and you're you're using about one tenth of your brain Uh, as you do in in quote-unquote real writing. And he becomes the kind of prototype for the self-loathing screenwriter out in in Hollywood. Uh, And he sends back this very famous telegram to his friend Ben Heck that says, you know, will you accept 300 per week uh, to, to come to Paramount Pictures? The 300 is peanuts. There's millions to be made out here, and your only competition is idiots. Don't let this get around. And that starts the flood of Eastern writers out to Hollywood. Um, You know, everyone from Faulkner to to Fitzgerald and Ben Hecht and all these guys went out there thinking, okay, but eventually we'll get back to our real work and the real work of writing novels or plays or journalism or whatever it is. I
0: think Hecht got it. He, uh, yes. he wasn't quite as alcohol-fueled as, uh, yes. as Herman, and he went back up to, up to Nyack and uh, Charles, Charles MacArthur and Helen Hayes and his wife and uh, kind of was able to take advantage of, of both coasts. But, uh, yeah, could, I think Herman couldn't. S- Herman couldn't.
1: He got out there, and he just – frankly, he loved it so much. He loved the weather. He loved the life, the lifestyle – and, and, and the money, I think the money meant a lot to him. And also, you know, he was a huge gambler. And so he, he couldn't keep the money. So whatever money he made, he very quickly lost. And, and then it just became a cycle of, you know, sort of boom and bust. Um, and um, yeah, but, and then, and, but the, the sort of generation behind him, was guys like his brother Joe, who did take the work seriously. And so Joe gets out there just a few years after Herman. He got out there at the age of 19, and he quickly saw, I think, what Herman didn't really, which is, uh, okay, uh, but you can succeed at this game and do really well and master it if you take it seriously. And Herman never took it seriously. He did beautifully and was you know, the highest paid writer in Hollywood for a time and you know, was sort of a legend among other writers. But but Joe took it seriously, put his nose to the grindstone, was a much more disciplined guy uh, and you know probably much more ambitious, um, much less uh, self-destructive in many ways, uh, was not a, a, a drinker, was not a gambler, was much more controlling and controlled and just put his head down and and did the work. And, you know, uh, sure enough, while Herman sort of spins out into this, you know, wonderful, you know, uh, exhilarating, self-destructive, you know, life, Joe is on the march. And, And before you know it, Joe has kind of passed Herman and become more successful. And Herman is looking around saying, oh, can you believe my idiot brother? He's got a Five picture deal at Fox. Can you believe my idiot brother? You know, I think my
0: idiot brother describes uh, their relationship.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and so um, and so that that was their relationship. And and you know maybe it was done with a little bit of love. My idiot brother. What are you going to do, my idiot brother? But but he's he's using the word idiot. And um, anyway, so that that and that dynamic and their. Two relation, their, their relationship to each other and to Hollywood and to the work um, became you know, what I, I wanted my book to be about. It's, yeah. it's very much about the two of them and, and their their lives.
0: Before we jump off to Kane and then later uh, Eve and, and uh, Joe's career as a, as a producer, I want to go back to Berlin. There was a, a movie that never was never made uh, called Mad Dogs or Mad Dogs and something. That you write about it at quite, at quite length, where Hitler came to power in the beginning of 1933. And uh, Herman uh, saw this, if not intuitively, he had been there. He, he sensed what might might happen. And uh, no one could sense what ultimately happened, but he saw something terrible was about to happen, and he wanted to make a film about it. And uh, as Louis Mayer said, uh, who probably the least favorite of my uh, Hollywood guys, we're making a lot of money in Germany. So yeah. Let it go. Uh, yeah. Talk about that, and how how disappointed was he that he he couldn't get it made? And uh, well, I, had yeah, he, and had, he, had it made, what kind of an impact do you think it would have had on his uh, on his life and career?
1: Well, those are great questions. I think you know, uh, so Herman, you know, when you're at, when you're doing something you don't really think is very good, you know, like the movies and Herman, like he, he just thought, that ah, this is all crap," you know, whatever, it's entertainment for the masses, whatever. I have a chance now to do something meaningful. I want to do something meaningful. So he he decides, I'm going to take on Hitler. And he, for the first time in his life, he's very strategic about it. He he knew, look, the Hollywood studios are making a lot of money in Germany. It's going to be very difficult to get this made. So the way to do it is to write a play so that it's not the studio, a play called The Mad Dog of Europe, uh, and he disguised Hitler all the way from Adolf Hitler to Adolf Mittler, and you know, much in the way that Chaplin later did with Adenoid Hinkle in The Great Dictator. You know, he disguised the name and he disguised the country, or he changed the name of the country. And and he wrote this play, and then he thought, let's get a, a producer options the play, so the studio will sort of be like kind of innocent and kind of sheltered from from you know from having done it. But the problem was he just didn't account for how fantastically enmeshed the studios were with Berlin and with Germany. And, and, and in particular, because uh, – and I think it's so fitting that we're having this conversation on Rosh Shana, Yeah. You know, because the studios were, I think without exception at this point, run by Jews – Jews who did not want to advertise their Jewishness. I mean, it was all about mom and baseball and apple pie. So far as the studios were concerned, you know, they, Andy they, Hardy
0: they, before Andy Hardy.
1: Yeah, exactly. So, but it's it's like they they weren't going to say, "Oh, we're going to do this important social justicey kind of thing and take on Adolf Hitler," it, because then people would say, "Well, wait a minute, you guys are a bunch of Jews anyway. Like, we don't like you." So it it, it just was it was sort of doomed from the start, or certainly has the feeling of being doomed from the start when you read about it now and you read the letters and, and reading the, even the, the script, you sort of feel like, God, this, it could never have happened. I mean, it could never have happened in 1933. By 1940, 41, it could have happened. Um, but by then, Herman had moved on. The studios had moved on. It was It was not going to happen. I think had Herman been able to make this in 33, which is when he wrote it, or 34... I think it would have done a tremendous amount to stem his feeling of having been a failure. And he wouldn't have stopped drinking. He wouldn't have, you know, it, you know no, no one uh, monkey stops the show. But I, I think it could have really changed his self-perception. Uh, uh, and, and he might have felt like, OK, I'm not wasting my time out here. I'm doing a, something worthwhile.
0: Maybe Franz would have signed off on that. Or maybe not? Uh,
1: you know, he might have, but he probably wouldn't have told Herman.
0: Okay, I know that guy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Anyway, uh, David Fincher's father did a, a screenplay which uh, David ultimately made into Mank, uh, which talks in, um, I'm a little disappointed in the film, all the publicity he got, but I think it's a pretty good look at what... Uh, what Herman was going through was he started working with Wells on this, on this script. Let's talk about, maybe not necessarily that film, but the, the circumstances around it, the automobile accident, uh, up to Victorville and, and Orson yeah. Wells. Yeah. Well, so
1: Herman by the late thirties had really, he'd run through every studio. Um, he had been fired from every studio at least once by that point. And he was sort of running on fumes and, um, and that actually, one of my favorite stories, actually, I think is from the late 30s, is when, you know, he's being fired by a studio head who says, ah, you know, not only are you, I'm going to make sure you never work in this, uh, for this studio again, I'm going to make sure you work, you never work for any studio in Hollywood ever again. And Herman says, promises, promises. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so, anyway, so at that point is when he meets Wells. And... It really was a great meeting uh, of the minds and and of the characters because, you know, Wells was as as authority defying as Herman was. And so Wells, you know, Hollywood hated Wells for for the contract that he had that got him out there. And and you know, his attitude towards Hollywood, like, you know, it's the biggest dream set anyone ever had, any boy ever had. Like it just they just were like, oh you little boy, like you have no idea what goes into making a movie. And and so Herman uh, really took to Wells, and Wells took to Herman. And the two of them got to talking and Herman started doing some radio plays for him, writing, you know, uncredited radio plays for his Mercury theater radio hour and, and really liking it. And somewhere in there, they started talking about doing a movie together and somewhere in there, you know, somebody suggested uh, William Randolph Hearst as a possible model. And somewhere in there, somebody suggested, let's do it from a lot of different points of view. And, uh, and and Wells, to his credit, said, "Herman, I can't leave you alone. I'm going to send you out to Victorville, and and I'll send you know my 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 lackey, John Hausman, to be your chaperone." And it's not quite as, you know, draconian as it was portrayed in David Fincher's movie Mank. It wasn't like you're not allowed to drink. Mm -hmm. Uh, But, and in fact, every night they went down to a canteen, uh, you know, not far from where they were, where Herman was doing the work. And they would have, he would have a nightcap. Um, But he did very disciplined work for just about the first time in, in his life. And he returns from Victorville eight or I think it's eight weeks later, or maybe it's 12 weeks, um, with, it's possible I'm being confused by the movie actually, but anyway, he returns with this 325 page script and it's all there American. Um, and, and that's the script, which became the script of Citizen Kane that they then went off and made the movie of. Um, and, Uh, it's a really, you know, it's, it's as, as the grandson, it's impossible to read that and not think, well, it's all there. It's all in there. I mean, Herman wrote the whole damn thing. It's right there. It's in there. But, you know, it's also impossible as just like a thinking person not to read that script and think, yeah, but there's a lot of stuff that's wrong and there's a lot of sort of you know blind alleys that and things that as you if you know the movie that just sure. don't end up in the movie and and who shaped that 325 page script into the movie and who put it up on the screen well that's Orson Welles so um you know the 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 deal that Herman had made you know was the same deal that everybody made who worked for Orson Welles which is Someone, man, man, we all know that. It's Mercury Theater. It's Orson Welles. He gets all the credit. He's the Sun King. We all just rotate around him and get to you know, bask in his magnificence. Um, so he, he knew he wasn't going to be getting a credit. Herman did. But he started to realize, not for the first time in his life, that he had made a bad deal. And he also started to realize, yeah, but actually, this script is pretty good. And I'd like my name on it. And he mentioned it to uh, Rita Alexander, the, the, uh, you know, the the sort of, uh, you know, nurse maid who was out there also with well with Houseman taking care of Herman. Uh, she was, she was typing it up every, every night, you know, she would type up the notes and, and he said, you know, it's really too bad. I'm not getting credited for this. And she was shocked. And she was like, wait, what do you mean? You're not getting credit for this? And he's like, no, you know, I'm not getting credit for this, but it's pretty good, isn't it? And she loved it and thought, yeah, you idiot. What are you doing? So, um, and, and Hausman was there and Hausman and Herman formed a kind of, you know, us against orson kind of partnership so i think hausman sort of stoked the fires against orson so by the time herman gets back uh to hollywood with the script he starts to make some noise about wanting to get his name on the the script even though it was counter to the contract that he had signed and he made a little bit of a fuss made pretty big of a fuss and eventually wells decided all right, you can have, you, you can put your name on the script, and not only that, your, your name is going to go ahead of mine. And, uh, and that just completely, you know, uh, sort of ended, ended the, the dispute so far as it went back then of course, in later years, Herman began to think, oh, I should have argued for sole credit. And, you know, and then after he was gone, my grandmother, Goma, as I called her, and we all called her, you know, she was like, oh, Herman wrote the whole thing. He wrote 99%, he wrote 98%, whatever. And, you know, I think that scholars and historians have looked at it and sort of felt like, yeah, the credit is pretty much fair. I mean, Robert Carringer wrote a kind of Impossible to argue with book about the writing of Citizen Kane, or about the making of Citizen Kane, and, and he he concludes that, you know, the, the, the credit is is more than fair. Um, so think, you know,
0: it's, it's such a collaborative process. One of the things that yeah Wells was particularly smart about is he he found Greg Tolan, who taught him everything yeah. he needed to know about cinematography. Yes. And, uh, right off the bat, that put him in, in, a, in a great position. And he surrounds himself with a writer like Herman and, and the supporting cast of the Mercury Players we've been working with for seven or eight years uh, on radio and in, in, uh, in, in theater in New York. Uh, so a, a team was kind of in place and he just adapted very successfully to the nuances of filmmaking.
1: Yeah, and I think he was smart enough and and secure enough to say, I know what I don't know, and teach me, Greg Toland, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and, you know, let's do stuff that you've always wanted to do, and, you know, people have said, oh, you can't do that, you can't show the ceiling, I mean, what are you doing, showing a ceiling, you can't show a ceiling, you know, and, and Wells was like, well, if that's something you want to do, let's do it, it's cool, and it's a heroic shot from down there, and, you know, let's dig a trench under the, under the, the the set, so you can really look up at me and see and see the ceiling as I'm doing that dance. And Charlie Kane, you know, I mean, like, there's so many innovations cinematically that sure. that were were Orsons. And yes, it's a totally brilliant and revolutionary landmark script. But you know, the direction of that film is just off the charts.
0: No, it, was, it was remarkable. Let's jump ahead to Joe a little bit, who started out as a. Uh... As a producer, things like the Philadelphia Story, A Woman of the Year. This is uh, so uh, George Cukor, George Stevens, and then the two that he won back to back double Academy Awards for for Best Director, and again for Best uh, Screenplay, uh, A Letter to Four Wives, which Daryl Zanuck cut down to three, which was his major <laughs> contribution, but not a not a small contribution. To
1: that. <laughs> it's a pretty it's a pretty important contribution. I, I would
0: say. I would say. and <laughs> And I, I love Kirk Douglas riffing on the advertising business in that, in that film. Yes. It's yeah. just, uh, just remarkable. But, I mean, to me, this is a, this is a, a lightweight. But then we get to Addison DeWitt and, and All About Eve. And uh, it's, you know, well, I, I don't know how many times I've seen it, but I, I, can, uh, I can watch Addison uh, spiel his venom over and over and over. Just great clients yeah. and a, and, a, and a great film for somebody who had a, a passion for the theater. Talk a bit about the making of that film and how it, uh, how it, I, I guess, uh, altered the perception of Mankiewicz of in Hollywood of Joe.
1: Well, I think so. Joe, you know, I think Joe was never he
0: Herman was loved. He, he was
1: beloved in Hollywood, and Joe wasn't. He just wasn't. He was he was admired. He was respected. Uh, And he was respected, you know, far more than Herman was because he did the work. And, you know, he got out there when he was really young. He, you know, was nominated for an Oscar when he was 21 for original screenplay or adapted screenplay. And he then became a producer, as you said, and and really worked his way up. Um, You know, one of the moguls had told him, like, you can't just direct. You have to learn to, you know, crawl before you can walk. And you got to be a producer. And so he produced, and he produced some great films. As you say, Philadelphia Story and, and, and you know, Woman of the Year, less good of a movie. But, you know, he produced a lot of things. Then he gets in the director's chair, and he's super focused about it. And he directs other people's scripts for his first five scripts. And then, he's, then he feels ready. Okay, now I'm going to write one of my own and and direct that. And he did. And then he did, you know, Letter to Three Wives, which was an adaptation of a, a sh- you know, a short story. And, and then he is ready to do what became his masterpiece, which was about the thing he cared most about, which was theater. And, and I believe, and I'm not the only one who thinks this, and it's not an original thought to me, but I think that, that the reason all about Eve towers above Joe's other work is because it is in some sense, an emotional autobiography. It is about a younger, ambitious, disciplined, you know, unloved, cold, calculating artist taking down and the 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 larger, beloved, warmer, larger than life artist. So it's it's Joe as Eve Harrington and Herman as Margot Channing. <laughs> now was was Joe conscious of this? Of course not. Um, but I think that the, the emotional reservoir he was able to draw when he wrote that script was, was that was, was growing up having this unbelievable figure in your, in your life who, you know, uh, Joe even said, like, you know, other people have got a dad complex. I've got a Herman complex. He, he felt like he was in Herman's shadow so much. And also growing up, Herman was his protector. Herman fought against Franz and defended Joe against you know, minor infractions and major ones, you know, and, and we get getting these battles with Franz over Joe. So, so Joe worshipped Herman initially, and then when he got out to Hollywood, he started to see Herman for who he really was the scales came from his eyes and he started to see, well, this guy is really flawed and he's not taking advantage of what's here. And I'm going to take, you know, I'm going to take full advantage of this place and take what is rightfully mine. And so I think he was drawing on that subconsciously or unconsciously when, when he wrote all about Eve, um, and and that, to me, is what makes this movie, uh, you know, I mean, it's so it's so fun. It's so delicious. The screenplay is so witty and fun and smart. Um, but I think that that extra element, the autobiographical element that's baked into it, uh, only makes it more fun to watch, for me, anyway. Yeah, well, <laughs> watch
0: it, you know, watch it through that prison, uh, you see something yeah. else again. I mean, he, he was Sammy Glick. Uh, as uh, Bud Schulberg wrote, but uh, you know, at the very end, a little homage to Erasmus Hall High School, as the uh, as Phoebe is putting on her headdress, which was uh, my yes. neighborhood school in those oh, days. Oh, that's yeah, yeah. yeah that's where I would have yeah. gone had I not gone to gone to Brooklyn Tech. But you know, but for me, uh, maybe this is unfair. But uh, his career stopped there. I'm not a huge fan of the Barefoot Contessa. I don't. Mm-hmm. I'm not a big fan of Bogey as he got older. Let's not even talk mm-hmm. about Cleopatra. He got bulldozed into that deal. And we mentioned House of Strangers at the outset. But had he stopped right there, uh, he's he's emblazoned for eternity. It just says so much about raw ambition, uh, about theater, uh, mm-hmm. about New York, about the New York Hollywood kind of constraint. You know uh, it, 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 it's, I think it's summed up a life in a lot of ways. And I would say, you know, if I were making the movie, I would stop it right there.
1: Mm, yeah. I, uh, that's, uh, that's very interesting. I, I have a hard time disagreeing with you. It's, it's so good. Um, and I don't think he came close to matching it again. I, there's certain, you know, parts of all the movies he made in the fifties and sixties and you know, sleuth is kind of fun and all that, but, but yeah, no, I, I, it's, it's, you know, it's it towers above the others. Um, you I can
0: even look at the little parts. You know, you look at uh Gregory Radoff, uh, when he sends Marilyn, uh, Addison sends Marilyn, it says, Do yourself some good. Uh, lots of yeah, little, lots of little insights of things that are going on, and, yeah. And, uh, you know, and of course, the the incomparable Thelma Ritter, who Joe loved.
1: Oh, god, yeah, god, he I loved mean, you know, there was
0: only yeah. you know, I mean, if she didn't exist, one would have to invent her, but she was extraordinary.
1: Yeah, she's great.
0: Pick up on South Whoa. Street, not to mention the the Christmas uh, Michigas with
1: uh, uh-huh. Uh-huh.
0: Chris Kringle, her, her debut role. Right, uh, right. Yeah, yeah that's right. where
1: Joe saw her.
0: Joe saw mm-hmm. her in that
1: and said, "I got to work with this one." Um, she's she's a Stradivarius. You know? Let's
0: go back. You refer to him as Joe, and go back to the French Embassy. And uh, what was the, what was the date when you saw Joe, and uh, maybe you saw him for the first time? Well, not for the first time, but no, so, i mean know, her, emotionally. yeah yes well so herman
1: uh herman died in nineteen fifty three and um and and i grew up knowing you know. Your grandfather wrote the greatest movie of all time, and your uncle, your great-uncle, who we never see, he's responsible for the biggest bomb of all time, Cleopatra. So <laughs> that's about as deep as my understanding of these two guys was until a fall day in 1988 when i recently graduated from college. I have nothing to do with myself, and my dad says, oh, your great-uncle Joe is being honored at the French embassy. You want to come along? I was like, "No, oh, yeah, Sure. And and I, I did, in the back of my mind, think, yeah, I'll be curious to meet this guy. I mean, he, I think he's just a jerk, right? And I meet him, and he's lovely and warm and witty and, and twinkly eyes, and he reminds me of my uncle, Frank, who I love dearly, and, and he reminded me a little bit of my mother, who had died when I was nine in 1974. So I just was like... I was completely thrown by this encounter, and oh, he introduced me to—I mean, whatever. Of course, he would. He introduced me to Claudette Colbert, who was there, and you know, I had a lovely time with with my great uncle Joe that afternoon, and. So I'm walking back with my dad through Central Park and I was like, dad, I don't get it. Why did we, like, he seems like a great guy. What's the problem? And so that's when my, and that's where my book begins is with this scene. And then with my dad telling me a story of, he's like, well, I, I think it has something to do with this. <laughs> you know. And then he tells me a story um, which I, I don't have to tell now, but I could, but, but it's Joe doing something so kind of, cold at worst uh, at best and at worst like malevolent and, and borderline well, I evil mean, i
0: was gonna not ask you to tell that story but i think it, it, it's quite after the all the nice things you said about joe uh, let's let's tell that story and then we'll leave people <laughs> let's, let's leave them other things to read in the rest of the book let's not tell the entire right. story but i think <laughs> okay. the, the dichotomy of the guy you met at the french embassy and the guy who did this uh yeah needs to be explained
1: Right. Well, so after Herman died in – my mother was 15 when Herman died. And Joe, her great-uncle Joe – or her uncle, not great-uncle. He was a great – wonderful uncle uncle. for her. He was a great uncle. And he took, you know, he, he was, uh, you know, very kind to her and, and put her through college. Like Herman had no money uh, by the time he died. And, and so Joe put her through college. He paid for a Europe trip. He, you know, he was a, it was a benevolent uncle. And, and then after she graduated from college and was living in New York, he... She she was even closer to him and, and she was sort of unofficial hostess uh, to, to his, you know, parties and stuff because his wife was this actress named Rosa Stradner who had come from uh, Austria in the, in the late 30s, early 40s and had had sort of – she was a very emotionally fragile, to say the least, and, and you know, uh, wildly mercurial woman and and frequently was, you know, put in, in sanatoriums or was just, like, not around. And, and they had had violent fights. And, you know, it was a lot easier for Joe to have my mother – 20, 21 years old, being the hostess of a party with Bennett Cerf and his wife and Avril Harriman and his wife, than to have, uh, you know, his wife who was was emotionally fragile. Um, so, anyway, so one Saturday morning, my mother gets back to her uh, apartment and there's all these telephone messages. Remember the, the days when you have telephone messages from her uncle saying, Call me, call me, call me. So she calls Joe and Joe says, I can't reach Rosa. She's up at Mount Kisco. She's not picking up the phone. Will you come up there with me? Uh, you know, they had a house in Mount Kisco. So my mother goes to Joe's place on Park Avenue and then they drive up to Mount Kisco and they get to Mount Kisco and Joe says, you check upstairs. And uh, she goes upstairs and finds the dead body of her aunt. And when you sort of unpack it, uh, that that action you sort of think wait a minute if you're really worried about your wife why don't you call somebody up there or drive up there on your own or at the very least say wait in the car I'll go in and check why do you send your niece up into the room up into the bedroom why do that what's going on there and it's – my mother came to feel, not immediately, um, you know, the, the following year, uh, you know, Joe walked her down the aisle when she got married to my dad, but she came to feel like, well, if Joe didn't know – that his wife was dead all afternoon, he certainly had a suspicion, and he certainly sensed what was up there, and she came to feel really set up uh, and, and sort of abused by the whole, uh, by the whole afternoon. Um, so that, yeah, that story sets off me in 1988, and I mean, it took me a long time to actually get around to it, but it did make me think, who was this guy? And frankly, who was Herman? Like, what? Who were these two guys that that they led to to this kind of, you know, this kind of drama? Um, so that's that's sort of the inciting incident. Well, of, c- of congratulations, of, you yeah.
0: seem like a, rel- a relatively stable kid <laughs> from my perspective. <laughs> well, thank, thank you for saying it, uh, yeah. both stable and and
1: the, the kid part. I think at, the, at this well, point,
0: well, yeah, I, I could be your father, Nick.
1: Okay. All right. Fine. fine. But you know, I, I, just I sound passed young. An, oh, you sound very, very young, but I passed an interesting milestone this year, which is I'm now older than Herman Mankiewicz ever, ever died. looked to be. Yeah. And oh. he, you just sort of like, Whoa, he really he'd like, I never thought of him as having died particularly young mm-hmm. um, because, because he, my God, the way he looked at the end of his life, uh, he looked like, you know, Gary Oldman looked, I mean, he, he looked at least 65 or 70 by the time he was dead by the time he died. And, and he just had so many interesting, you know, phases of his life and career. Not,
0: not quite like Gary Oldman in Hannibal. A different, not quite
1: that bad. <laughs> no, no, no. Uh, I mean, Gary Oldman in Mank a lot of people said, geez, what's he doing? He's 62, he's playing a 42-year-old. But Herman looked 62 at 42, you know. Um, so, uh, well, thank you for, for, for saying that I uh, appear to be stable.
0: I was going to say, you mentioned the, the, the milestone, you know, and when you get to a certain point when someone you close to has died, you start to look at everything you accomplished subsequently. You know, I mean, I look at my life, my life, I've been in France for 12 years. Everything that's really I've done in a, in a latter third of my life has occurred after my father's death. And, mm-hmm. and much of what you've accomplished and will accomplish certainly has occurred after your mom's death, but uh, after Herman's death. And I, I think you, when you stop to think like that, it... Uh, it informs a lot of what you do going forward, I believe.
1: Yeah, no, I totally, I, I completely agree.
0: So let, uh, let's talk about another, uh, not entirely dysfunctional character. I can't let you get away without talking about the 86 Met- Mets. And we're in Boston. There's, they were still dying over Bill Buckner. But, but more importantly, the great Ted Williams. Uh, I, you know, I was gr- growing up with, I watched Duke Snyder's hair turn gray in center field at Ebbets Field, uh, I was obviously a Mickey Mantle fan, as everyone, uh, you know, every white Jewish kid of my generation was as well, irrespective of the fact that he played for the Yankees. Um, and David Halberstam wrote a wonderful book called Roommates about, mm. you know, the four players, Bobby Doerr, uh, uh, Dom DiMaggio, uh, Joe, and um, Johnny Pesky, uh, and, and which uh, Ted comes off as a really mentally guy. Um, Talk a little bit about Ted Williams in the documentary you made on his life.
1: Yeah, well, he had mellowed. <laughs> I, thinking, uh, I don't think. I, you know what? He was always there was always a, a decency about him. Yeah, I mean, the um, Jimmy Fund,
0: his relationship. Yeah, that, yeah. I mean, the he, stuff that people he, didn't he, know about.
1: Yeah. There, there was a lot that people didn't know. I mean, you just saw him, you know, spitting at fans and, sure. and, you know, being so such a, I don't know if I'm allowed to curse on this, but sure. I mean, he was just an asshole. And um, to, to but so that, that's, many.
0: That's a noun. That's not a curse.
1: Okay, good. Yeah. Uh, but, but, but yes, he, he actually was, uh, you know, he, he, was, he's, you know, was incredible with the Jimmy Fund. Uh, and he told sports writers like, yeah, I'm, you know, I'm going to the hospital, to see kids. If you write about this, I'm going to stop doing it. And, you know, he he didn't ever want to be seen as doing anything so that he could get good publicity. So, you know, Boston fans who were booing him and thought he was a selfish prick didn't realize he actually had a tremendous heart and was was offering a great great deal of his time to these kids who were sick and and, and dying in the hospital mm-hmm. and who had done you know nothing um he was a really interesting complicated character and the film i made about him uh i guess now it's about three years ago uh for american masters um was was you know tremendously fun to make as a baseball fan and john ham uh, a
0: big cardinal fan so he's a baseball guy
1: Yes, John Hamm narrated it, and he's uh, he was a huge Cardinal fan, which I felt like. You know, um, it's interesting because the difference between Stan Musial, the man, mm-hmm. and Ted Williams, the kid. You know, it's like Stan was a man. You know, he, he was mature, and you know, but Ted Williams was a kid. I mean, he was bounding all over the place, and you know, couldn't contain himself. Had no real Teddy, Teddy filter. Ball Teddy ball game, the splendid splinter. He had a lot of nicknames.
0: And, uh, and what Halberstam uh, suggests in that book is uh, you know, how different he was from DiMaggio, who got all the praise, and I think he was somewhat quiet because he realized if he opened his mouth, he might say something stupid, uh, and DiMaggio never got the credit, and, uh, I mean, and um, Williams never got that credit. I don't think DiMaggio ever did anything even remotely as generous as uh no no
1: no and the more you the more you learn about those two guys the more you realize like they, they got everyone got it wrong like yeah, william was and one of his yeah. buddies
0: was out of a job needed some money for an operation the money appeared with no, right. no fanfare yeah yeah anyway, why don't we give we love, me your why bank account and On not note uh, a complicated but uh, mentally guy and uh, okay. Davis, I want to thank you it's been a lot of fun don't go yeah, away I, thank I want you. To talk to you off 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 air, as they say. Okay, so well, thanks guest for is having Nick me. Nick Davis, author of Competing with Idiots, Herman and Joe Mankiewicz, A Dual Portrait. Thank you very much, Nick, and good luck with the book. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you for joining us, and please share your comments and suggestions at terrence at paris-expat.com. That's T-E-R-R-A-N-C-E at paris-expat.com. And visit Paris-Expat.com to sign up for my five weekly newsletters about the City of Light. Until next time, à bientôt à Paris.